Last week, Dave Swain opened up our series on emotionally healthy spirituality. And he talked last week about the problem of unhealthy spirituality. And if you are here, if you weren't here, go online and listen to the sermon. If you are here, you started to realize that this is an issue that, that affects most of our lives. There are areas of unhealthy spirituality in most of us. So last week, um, Dave preached. Um, this week is our second week in the series. Um, and I'm going to preach on knowing yourself so that you can know God. And there are going to be four ingredients to um, this church-wide initiative, and I just want to review them for you so that you don't miss out. Obviously, first is the sermons, and we'll be preaching on this right up until Palm Sunday. No, that's not true. We'll be preaching on this up through the end of March. Um, and, um, and so other sermons that are coming up. Next week, Helen Lee's actually going to preach on going backwards in order to go forwards. Looking at things in your past in your, your family that may be getting in the way of you mo- moving forward with God. And then after that, we're going to preach on journeying through the wall. Here's, a, here's an interesting March 1st, enlarging your soul through grief and loss. Most of us tend to, to try to avoid grief and to, to just, just not want loss to mess us up, but there are ways we find in the scripture where it can actually increase your capacity to understand God and to love people. Um, We're going to talk about discovering the rhythms of the daily office. We're going to talk about Sabbath on that Sunday. And what does Sabbathing look like for the New Testament people of God? Um, March 15th, growing into an emotionally mature adult. And March 22nd, we're going to end the series with an encouragement for you so that you can start thinking about it. An encouragement for you to write a rule of life, to actually put down on paper what matters to you the most about your spiritual journey and your relationship with God and your relationship with people so that you have a standard that you are trying to achieve. And that's not something anybody else can do for you. Only you can do that. So the first component is obviously then the the sermons each week. Second component is each week, starting next week, after the service, we're going to have a QA and a on the theme of that week's um, sermon. The, it's, this is not intended to be a small group experience that's coming next. What this is intended to be is a place where if, if something that I've said or the preacher has said that has, has created confusion for you or some other kinds of questions you want to know, what does this mean? We're going to have a panel of three or four people each week just to, to field questions. After the panel discussions, the, the prayer team will be available if there are items of prayer that you would specifically like them to pray for. So first component is the sermon. Second component is the Q&A. Third component of the church-wide initiative is our community groups. If you're not in a community group, I really want to encourage you to find one. The, the college groups, many of those groups have already started. Um, our young adult groups are going to be starting over the next few weeks. And, and what we've asked each small group to do is go through the emotionally healthy small group curriculum. That's going to be a place you're going to actually see Pete Scazzaro who wrote this, these materials. He's going to do like a 15, 20-minute video that will get you to start to talk in community about that theme. So I want to encourage you over these next few weeks to get into a small group. Um, If you want to, we're always looking for small group leaders. And if you want to just open your home, we can get you the training materials so you can actually, or your dorm room or someplace, you can actually lead a small group. Then the fourth component of the church-wide initiative is um, this little book called The Daily Office. And 
it's interesting. I've, I've worked with a number of churches going through this, um, this initiative. I hear more people say this was the most important part of the initiative than anything else. What the daily office is, is as, following the themes of the sermons, each week there are devotionals for you to be still before God, to reflect on a scripture, to reflect on a truth, and then just ask God, what do you want to say to me? And so the way this is designed, there's actually designed for you twice a day to set aside five to seven minutes to reconnect with God. Truth be told, I've been through this like four times. I've never kept up to the schedule of twice a day. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. First of all, go online and order this. And I'd recommend most of you order it digitally. Go to Amazon, order it, get it on your phone so you've got it with you wherever you are so you can do this at any point um, over the next um, eight weeks of, or seven weeks of sermons, okay? Um, if you want to, you can order the, the book copy. Um, and by the way, remember, if you order things from Amazon, do it through Amazon Smile so that the church gets a donation from them. Um, the digital is like four bucks, I think. Um, and here's what I want to encourage you to do. Whenever you get it, just start with the devotional that fits for that day of the week of that sermon. And then if you don't keep up, just keep moving forward day by day. If you miss some devotionals, go ahead and miss them. Then the next week, if you miss a whole week, start with, say, week three, day one. And then what you can do is after the, the unified theme, the, the initiative is over, I'm going to encourage you to go, even if you've done all of them, I'm going to encourage you to go through it again slowly, one or two devotionals a day for another eight weeks because this will be the fifth time I've gone through it and I'm still getting things out of this, all right? So those are the four ingredients for the, um, the church-wide initiative. Okay, this theme of knowing yourself so that you can know God means that I have to tell you a little bit about my story. Some of you know some parts of it. Um, there are other parts of it that I haven't shared here. Um, my parents, some of you know, my parents grew up 50 miles west of here in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. Um, my mom actually um, was a, traced her roots back to the Mayflower. Uh, there's a little girl, four years old, came over on the Mayflower, and my family traces from Mary Allerton. And um, my dad's family was way too poor for anybody to keep track of, of anything. Um, all I really know about my dad's family, a couple things. Um, his family lost their family farm during the Great Depression. He was like six or seven years old and had to move into the city of Fitchburg so that his dad could work in the paper mills. And working in the paper mills was backbreaking work. Actually, his dad ended up with a disability because he broke his back in the paper mill. And it was grimy, dirty work. My dad's goal in life was to do whatever he could do to escape the paper mills and that kind of a life. And for him, that meant education. Um, the only other thing I, I really know about my dad um, is that when he was around 12 years old, he came home late from school one day and had this blowout argument with his mom. She went to her bedroom and died of a massive stroke. And my dad never really shook the idea that somehow that argument that he had with his mother is what killed her. Um, my mom's family, um, neither, neither of them grew up in Christian families. My mom's family um, had a farm in Fitchburg. And to give you just a bit of an idea of the dysfunction, evidently there were, was constant arguing in my mom's um, household growing up. Evidently it got physical. The worst part of it, though, is that she had a live-in uncle that abused both her and her older sister sexually. 
And to give you an idea of how messed up it was, when my mom went to her mother and said, Uncle Lewis is doing these things to us, what her mother said was this, don't you dare tell your father or he will kill him. Imagine what that does to a young girl growing up. My mom was, was emotionally damaged in her family of origin so that when she um, met my dad, when my dad proposed to her, she said, I can only marry you if you promise me one thing. And he said, what's that? She says, you have to promise me that there will never be any fighting in our house. Which makes sense coming from her background. But you know what kind of a family that sets up if you can never argue and fight? If you can never have negative feelings and bring them out for people to, to deal with them? If you can't deal with that stuff constructively? What that does growing up in that household is it means you're always swallowing any of your negative emotions. You don't know how to resolve things. You don't know how to speak the truth in love because you don't know how to resolve arguments. Well, um, the way that, that my parents became Christians is my dad, um, when he was, they met in junior high. So like early high school, um, I think my dad was 16. He was actually stealing apples from the apple trees in the Baptist pastor's yard. He and a buddy were up in the tree and the pastor came home, okay? And they're caught red-handed. Um, I want to meet this pastor um, when I get to heaven. So he calls them down from the trees and they're expecting, they are, they are going to get it like you wouldn't believe. And what he said to them was something along the lines of, well, boys, I don't think your parents are going to want to hear about this. What do you think? And they said, no, they're not going to let you. He said, I'll make a deal with you. If you both come to Vacation Bible School every day next week, then your parents never have to hear about this incident, which was a deal for them, right? So they both go to Vacation Bible School the next week. Both of them accept Christ in that week. I hope that I'm that clever someday when I'm trying to um, have spiritual conversations with people. So my dad, I didn't know this till my dad's funeral, and my cousin told the story. Um, from that, every person for three generations in the Johnson family line was a follower of Jesus Christ. My dad led his three sisters to the Lord. My dad led my mom to the Lord. And for three generations, starting because some pastor was smart enough not to get crabby about apples, but to make it an opportunity for two boys to hear about God. So, my dad leads my mom to Christ, proposes to her, they get married. And from my dad's background of feeling like this argument killed his mom, my mom's background, now we're raised in a family um, where my mom is stunted emotionally. And my dad just tries to keep the peace no matter what. Um, it took us years to figure this out in my family. But um, sometime in our 30s, it started to dawn on my brother and my sisters and I that our mom didn't know how to love us. She just didn't seem to have... She was so wrapped up in her woundedness, she didn't seem to know how to give love and affection. Now, if you know anything about child development, a child is supposed to learn unconditional love in the arms of its mother. Yet, we kind of think that none of the Johnson kids were held by their mother and loved by her. So there's this little boy that they call Billy who desperately wants to be loved but doesn't have a clue of how to be loved, doesn't know what to do when people try to love him. So um, Marla will, will give my son Daniel a back rub and Daniel's go, oh, that feels so good, that's wonderful. Marla gives me a back rub and I freeze up. It's like, I don't know what to do. 
All right? Think maybe that has affected my spiritual journey just a little bit in not knowing how to be loved, maybe not knowing how to love very well. How'd you like to marry that guy? Right? Here's the deal. We're all broken just in different places in different ways. And we all marry people who are broken. And if we don't explore these elements of who we are, what ends up happening is, because, you know, negative emotions don't go away because you swallow them hard. All they do is they go underground and they erupt and sabotage us later as we spew them on the people that we love. So here's this guy that doesn't... Seriously, when we had our kids, our, one of our kids would come in the door crying, right? Just, uh, you know, they're like, yay, tall, whatever. And Marla would start asking them questions. Are you hurt? No. Are you sad? No. Are you angry? Mm, I don't know. And tell me what happened. I remember once, I mean, I watched Marla do that. And once I watched her, I finally said, where on earth did you learn how to do that with the kids? And she said, just doing what my mom did with me. You know who did that for me? You know who taught me to put words to my emotions? Marla did. Because I didn't have, I had a gap that was going on here. Now, all that said, I am incredibly blessed to have grown up in a devout Christian home. My parents really did love Jesus. They knew what it was like to, to not be a follower of Christ and to have Christ. And they, so when we went to church, it wasn't a ritual it's because we loved Jesus. And some of you know the story of um, when my parents stopped going to church. But even when they stopped going to church, it was because they got tired of seeing Christians that didn't look like Jesus. And they kept getting disappointed in the church. So one of the great blessings is that I grew up in a Christian home. And, and even after my parents stopped going to church, I still kept going with my brother. And, and every once in, my, once in a while, my sisters would go. I heard tons of good sermons on knowing God, tons of youth group lessons and Sunday school lessons on what it was to know God. My spiritual Christian heritage taught me to want to know God and to want to do the things that Jesus did. But here's what my spiritual heritage didn't teach me. It didn't teach me to get to know myself. And it's the self that is transformed when we, know the, when we come to know the power of Jesus. My heritage just kind of missed that. And so um, David Benning, um, here I get a quote, David Benner, sorry. Um, he says that that's actually a new phenomenon in the church. The previous centuries of the church have constantly taught that to know God, you have to know yourself. And it makes such perfect sense. Because if you don't know what's going on inside of you, how can you put on the virtues of gentleness and kindness and love and mercy towards others. If you don't know the junk that's happened, if, if our Christian formation is worth anything, it's got to start to address the junk that's inside. And we're all broken somewhere. So, listen to some quotes across the, the centuries of, the, of Christian writings. This is Augustine. He says, How can you grow close to God when you are far from yourself? And so he has a prayer in the Confessions where he prays, Lord, grant that I may know myself so that I can know you. Meister Eckhart was a Dominican writer, 13th century. He wrote, No one can know God who does not know himself. Teresa of Avila, um, almost all problems, she's writing in the 1600s, almost all problems in the spiritual life 
stem from a lack of self-knowledge. Thomas Akempis, and I, I read Thomas Akempis when I was a teenager a number of times, but somehow I missed this. Thomas Akempis writes in The Imitation of Christ, a humble knowledge of self is a surer way to God than a search for deep learning. I was taught to know lots of truth about God, but I was clueless about learning any truth about myself. And then John Calvin. This is how John Calvin begins the Institutes of the Christian Religion. The Institutes was Calvin's attempt to get all of his, his best thoughts about the Christian life into to one place. And he begins the Institutes of the Christian Religion with this. He says, There is no deep knowing of God without a deep knowing of self. And there's no deep knowing of self without a deep knowing of God. So Pete Scazzaro, who wrote this Emotionally Healthy Curriculum, he says, Getting to know our core self requires following God into the unknown, into a relationship with him that often turns our present spirituality upside down. God invites us to remove the false layers we wear to reveal our authentic self, to awaken the seeds of the true self that he has planted within us. In light of that being our Christian tradition, how strange it is, is it that growing up in a biblically committed church in a devout Christian home, I didn't address the issues of self. And here's why you got to address them, folks. If you don't, they will sabotage your spiritual intentions and they will wound the people around you. And most of you have experienced that with parents or significant others who have done that to you. We've got to get to a place where we let the transforming power of the Holy Spirit into that stuff. And here's the deal. If something's not inside of you, it can never, ever, ever come out of you, right? If it's not there, it doesn't matter how much you get squeezed, it's not coming out. But if something comes out of you, no matter how good, bad, or ugly, if it comes out of you, it's because it's inside of you. Part of learning to know ourselves is to pay attention to what comes out, especially when we're squeezed. Pay attention to what comes out of you when you get cut off in traffic because that's inside of you. Pay attention to what comes out of you when somebody dings your ego because that's inside of you. And if you're going to have the kind of a spiritual life that blesses other people, you've got to bring those things and place them before Jesus and ask him to heal them. So I had no clue how much... My mom was messed up um, emotionally. Um, and it's still messing me up, guys. Think about it. When I get into a conflict, I'm not sure how to express what I want or what I think without doing damage to other people. So I've always got to back up and do all this confusion because I haven't learned that it's okay to have emotions. Part of, I mean, your emotions are in you because you're created in the image of God and God has emotions. Yet many of us are taught that, that our emotions don't count or we shouldn't express them. We're not taught to honor them as part of the spirit of how we've been created in the image of God. So, how do we get towards whatever this is that we're talking about? Um, Christian formation writers use some terminology 
that when I first came across it, I thought, oh, that sounds like psychobabble. Until I did some, some biblical research and found where it was anchored down. Christian formation writers will talk about your true self and your false selves, okay? There is a true self that is when you are living in right relationship with God, you are able to live your true self. It is simply walking in the spirit. It is putting on the new nation, the new nature. Now, there are so many false selves, pseudo-selves, that you can live instead of that true self in who you were created to be in Jesus Christ. So we sang some of the songs. Here's something that is true. The love of Jesus has no bounds. When you have your identity anchored in the fact that you are perfectly and completely loved by your heavenly father, guess what? You don't have to manipulate other people to treat you a certain way anymore. You can drop all that energy that you expend trying to get the world to treat you a certain way. Because you know what? Even if somebody mistreats you, even if you're unjustly accused, who you are is who you are before God. And God perfectly and completely loves you. There is no bound to the love of Jesus. That's when you can live your true self. The other thing we sang about is that God is faithful. When you live into that truth, then you can be bold in your life. You can face losses in your life. And you still know that God is always, always, always faithful that he has begun a good work in you. And it may confuse you at times, and it may, it may be tough at times, but God's going to finish that work that he began in you. When you live in relation to that truth in your relationship with God who is faithful, you are free to live your true self. And so let me um, give you some um, symptoms of the false self. Throw the screen up here. Um, these are put together by Emotionally Healthy Spirituality folks. Um, Symptoms of the false self, I say yes when I really mean no. When you're secure in yourself and the answer is no, you can actually say no in an honoring way. I get depressed when people are upset with me. Dependent relationships are a sign of a false self. Okay? Play with that one for a little while. Um, I have a need to be approved by others in order to feel good about myself. I act nice on the outside but inside, I can't stand you. I often remain silent in order to keep the peace. That was my family background. Next slide. I believe that if I make mistakes, I myself am a failure. I criticize others in order to feel better about myself. I avoid looking weak or foolish for not having the answer. I have to be doing something exceptional to feel alive. I have to be needed to feel alive. One more slide. I'm fearful and I can't take risks. I do what others want so they don't get mad at me. I use knowledge and competence to cover my feelings of inadequacy. I want my children to behave well so others will think I am a good parent. And I compare myself a lot to other people. Now we could come up with other lists of symptoms of false selves. Living pseudo-lives, which is not the life that Jesus died for you to be able to live. So there's a, another writer by the name of um, um, John Mulholland who writes about this. And let me find those notes. I remember now that I cut those out of the sermon because I wasn't going to take time, but I'm going to give them to you anyway. Robert Mulholland says, the false self is a fearful self. 
because you're always scared that somebody's going to do something to you that you won't appreciate. He says the false self is a protective self. You can't trust that God's going to protect you, so you've got to stand up for yourself. The false self is a possessive self, not just possessing objects, but also possessing people. Whereas in our true self, we see our possessions as opportunities to exercise stewardship for God. The false self, he says, is a manipulative self. The false self is a destructive self towards ourselves, towards others, and towards creation. He says the false self is self-promoting, and the false self is an indulgent self. Think there's a problem when you don't live the life that you were were called to live and gifted from Jesus to live? So, the scripture for today is the scripture of David and Goliath. And you know the story of David and Goliath, right? He's the youngest of eight children. He's the scrawny little guy. When Samuel comes to David's father and says, gather your sons, David's father doesn't even remember him, right? The other seven show up, and and David's the nobody who nobody thinks about. And so um, at one point, his three older brothers were in the army, and they were fighting the Philistines. And at one point, David's father says to him, David, go and take some food to your brothers. So David goes out to where um, there's a valley and the Israelites are on one side of the valley and the Philistines are on the other side of the valley. And up and down the valley twice a day, Goliath walks taunting the Israelites. He says, there's no reason for us to have, a whole, have all these people die. You just send out one champion and the cha- your champion and I will fight. Whoever wins will make slaves of the other people. And the Israelite soldiers are cowering in fear because not a single one of them is living into their true selves. So they're cowering in fear. Now, yes, Goliath is a giant, okay? His, his spear, the head of his spear is like 15 pounds, okay? His javelin, all right? He is, he is a formidable opponent. Yet David comes up, finds his brothers, looks at the situation, and what David's thinking in his head is, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that dares defy the armies of the living God? David has a right understanding that Goliath isn't a problem when you live in the power of God, yet everybody else is cowering. Now, David is a teenager, which tells you that you can be leaning into your true self Right now, you don't have to wait till you're 40 or 50 years old to figure this out. You can be living into your true self right now. David had to overcome three obstacles to live into his true self. First obstacle that he had to overcome was family of origin. The little scrawny kid, you don't matter, get out. I mean, his brothers say, David, go home. I mean, David goes and talks to David, go home, get out of here. You're worthless. You can't do any good here. Go away. Some of you know families of origin that have treated you like that. You're not worthwhile. You're a nobody. You're invisible. Go home. He had to overcome family of origin obstacles. Second obstacle that he had to overcome was the obstacle of an authority figure. King Saul is the king of the land. David goes up to King Saul and says, I'll go fight him. And what's this authority figure say to him? You can't do it. You're just a little boy. There's no way. No, you cannot do this. Now, yes, we are to seek wisdom from the people in our lives. But you've got to know that sometimes authority figures in your life will encourage you not to be bold and live your true self, but to live a false self. 
what King Saul does with David is he says, okay, okay, okay. You can wear my armor. And that's not what David was created to be like. Saul tries to give him his armor. David is smart enough to figure out. He puts it on. He goes, this isn't me. I can't do this. I can't go to battle not living my true self. So he gets rid of Saul's armor. And he picks up five stones and his sling. And he goes out to meet Goliath. He had to overcome a significant authority figure and probably mentor in his life to live his true self. You might have to do that as well. And then the third obstacle that David had to overcome in order to live his true self was he had to cut through the taunting of Goliath, who represents for us giants in our lives too, the world, the flesh, and the devil, constantly taunting and mocking us that we cannot really live the life that Jesus wants us to live. We are not capable. We will be killed. And so, um, so there's a scripture here. Did I miss the scripture? It's the previous slide. Now I'll go to the next one. Go down two slides. One, family, significant others. Goliath, there we go. Boop. Go back. There it is. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in hand, he approached the Philistine. And here's what he says to the taunts of Goliath. He says to Goliath, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head, and then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel." When we boldly and courageously live our true self, the world starts to remember again that there is a God who is alive and active. You will save yourself. You will save your people if you will live your true self. That means peeling back layer by layer the junk that is within you and letting the power of God touch those elements of who you are. Here's the sad thing, right? By now, most of you have thought of somebody in your life who's a Christian living a false self, inflicting their falseness on everybody else. Don't be that person. Don't be that parent. Don't be that aunt or that uncle. Don't be that friend. Pursue the true self that God wants you to be. So emotionally healthy spirituality suggests four practical principles to, to get into touch and to boldly live your true self. Number one is to pay attention to yourself with times of silence and solitude. That's what the daily office is intended to do in this um, church-wide initiative. 
get you to pull away, to detach from the world and everybody's expectations so you can be in the presence of God and remember what God says is true about you. If you don't learn to detach from all those expectations and all those pressures of the world, you will keep getting sucked into them. So the first thing is to pay attention to our ourselves in silence and solitude. Secondly, um, emotionally healthy spirituality, I, I, I think this is critical, says find trusted companions for the journey. Here's why I need trusted friends in my spiritual journey. I don't even see the lies that I'm living. I need brothers and sisters who can come to me and say, Bill, that was your pseudo-self. Weird thing going on that. That wasn't who you're supposed to be. So find trusted friends who will do this journey and that you give permission to speak into your life when they see stuff that doesn't align with your true self. Number three, we're going to have to move out of our comfort zones. All right, You think it was comfortable for David to go up against Goliath? All right? Even though he knew who he was and he knew who God was, there was still a challenge that, that he was going to have to do to march out there against that giant. We're going to have to step out of our comfort zones. As long as you stay comfortable, you are probably going to be living a pseudo-self. You're going to be living a shadow life. So let's move out of our comfort zones. And number four, let's pray for courage. This is not something that is going to come by accident. It's not going to slip into our life unnoticed. We're going to need to pray for courage and here, in two directions. Pray for courage for yourself and let's pray for courage for each other. Imagine what our congregation could be like if we could start more and more dealing with that junk and more and more boldly living so that the world will know that there is a God in Israel once again. So a couple scriptures to encourage you. As you launch into this journey, and please launch into this journey, I pity your children if you don't. As you launch into this journey, remember Isaiah 52, the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Remember, remember Romans 8, 28. In all things, God works together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. Remember Philippians 1, 6. God who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. All right, I just want to lead you now in day one, week two, the daily office, the first one for this week. And I want to lead you in it because I want you to experience what it is that, um, that I'm encouraging you to embark in over these next seven weeks. Um, each daily office starts with two minutes of silence. That is incredibly intentional. It's going to take more than that, but at least we're going to start by just stilling our hearts and souls before our God. So I'm going to have two minutes of silence. I'm going to read you a scripture. I'm going to read you um, a couple devotional thoughts. And then we're going to pray, and we're going to end with two minutes of silence. And I'm going to encourage you in your daily office through this unified theme, start with two minutes of silence, end with two minutes, so that you are anchoring in the Lord. So get yourselves comfortable, and let's take two minutes of stillness before God.
The scripture for this daily office is Mark 1, verses 33 to 38. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So the devotional thought on that text, the challenge to shed our old false self in order to live authentically in our new true self strikes at the very core of true spirituality. We see this authenticity in the life of Jesus. In the midst of a mini revival in the town of Capernaum, Jesus was able to withstand the pressure of everyone looking for him and he was able to move on to another place. He also knew his father who loved him and had a work for him to complete. In living faithfully to his true self, however, Jesus disappointed a lot of people. He disappointed his family to the point where his mother and siblings wondered if he was out of his mind. He disappointed the people he grew up with in Nazareth. When Jesus declared who he really was, the Messiah, they tried to push him off a cliff. He disappointed his closest friends, the 12 disciples. They projected onto Jesus their own picture of the kind of Messiah they expected him to be. When he failed to meet their expectations, initially they all quit on him. He disappointed the crowds. They wanted an earthly Messiah who would feed them, fix all their problems, overthrow the Roman oppressors, work miracles, and give inspiring sermons. They, too, walked away from him. And he disappointed the religious leaders. I didn't mention this in the sermon, but it's amazingly easy to develop religious false selves, too. And many of you have seen people who have done that. He disappointed the religious leaders. They did not appreciate the disruption his presence brought to their day-to-day lives or to their theology. They finally attributed his power to demons and had him crucified. So a question to consider. What might be one specific way that you give in to the expectations of others rather than be faithful to what Jesus has for you? At the end of each daily office is a brief prayer. So let's pray together. And then we're going to have two more minutes of silence. Jesus, I'm so grateful that you understand what it is like to feel pressure from the expectations of others. It can feel crushing at times. Lord, help me to love others well, while at the same time remaining faithful to you. In Jesus' name. And now let's have two more moments, or two more minutes of silence before the Lord. Just listen to what the Spirit wants to say to you.
Lord Jesus, first I want to thank you for the gift of silence. It's not always easy at first, but we start to find that you meet us there when we just give you the opportunity to do so. It seems, Father, that it was perfectly obvious to Christians across the century. But in our lifetime, somehow knowing truth about you has just overshadowed learning the truth about ourselves in relation to you. We want your transformational power to touch every aspect of our being so that we give our children the gift of our true selves, so that we give the world the gift of our true selves. Please make us incredibly discontent to live a shadow and pseudo life of the soul. And would you do that with us here at Cornerstone so that more and more people throughout Boston know that there is a living God and he sent us his son that we might have full and abundant and free and glorious lives to in turn give to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.